Helo a chroeso i bodlediad yr Academy Genedlaethol ar gyfer arweinyddiaeth a ddysgol yng Nghymru. Podlediad sy'n rhannu materion ac arferion arweinyddiaeth allweddol ar draws y sector addysg yma yng Nghymru ac yn rhyngwladol. Hello and welcome to the podcast from the National Academy for Educational Leadership in Wales, a podcast that shares key leadership issues and practices across the education sector here in Wales and internationally. I'm Christine Jackson and I'm an associate with the Leadership Academy and head teacher at Glaslip Primary School in Newport within the Education Achievement Service. This episode features Professor Mick Waters, Professor of Education at Wolverhampton University. Mick has a wealth of leadership experience at school, local authority and government level. He has had a leading role in helping schools rethink their approach to curriculum design. He's been instrumental here in Wales in leading the development of the professional standards for leadership, teaching and assisting teaching and has worked closely with Welsh Government in recent years on some exciting new proposals for teachers' careers and professional learning. In this podcast, Mick explores leadership in Wales and its educational context. Prynau'n dau chi gyd a chroeso i'n cyfres webinar datgloi arweinyddiaeth. Good afternoon to you all and welcome to our webinar series Leadership Unlocked. Heddiw, rydyn ni'n croesawu yr athro Mick Waters fel ein siaradwr gwaf. Today we welcome Professor Mick Waters as our guest speaker. Thank you, Tegwyn. And uh, look, it's lovely to be with everybody and uh, thank you for joining me, really. It's a pleasure to be part of this series. It's It's been absolutely smashing, I think. And what I'm trying to do in the next 30 minutes, a very short, truncated session, is to conclude the series with a few reflections, a, a couple of additional issues perhaps related to the Welsh education reform journey and to and to make some links between the three contributions that we've heard over the over the weeks. It was only the 5th of November when Marcus began, uh, when Stephen began and, and Stephen Heppel took us I thought on a on a sort of down the runway and lifted us off and, and away we went and then Marcus and Laura took us to enjoy some dizzy heights in leadership and here it's me now to, to bring us back down again, um, perhaps gently and with a soft and smooth landing, to think, well, what have we learned? What do we pick up on the way? And how can we use what we've learned in a, in a, in a productive way in our schools now and in the future? So I'm hoping there'll be some information, a little bit of challenge, not too much. I mean, we've got enough on at the minute and, 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 and lots of reassurance because I think one of the things that's come through this series has been a sense that uh, the, the, there's a real reassurance in, in gathering together virtually it's a very odd concept isn't it we're, we're all spread out and we come together on a on a screen but we feel that we're in in the same thing together and I, I because it's a short time that I'm with you I've, I've chosen some particular themes and, and the four themes I've chosen to talk about are a quality school, which will be very brief, but get us going. Uh, some of the things to do with COVID, because each speaker talked about COVID quite extensively. And then some issues to do with leadership, matching the things that came up from different speakers. And lastly, part of leadership, trust. Uh, because I, every speaker has talked about trust. And I, I just want to spend a little bit of time at the end talking about that. So a little bit to start with about quality in schooling. 
I've always believed since I became a head, I started to work out what I was trying to do. And it seems to me that what you're trying to provide as a leader of a school is the best possible school you can offer. I know, I know some of us aren't in schools, we're in youth services or scouts or other agencies, but we're still trying to provide the highest quality that we can, we can provide. And I think, and I thought then, and I still sort of hold it, there are really only three things you can work on as a school leader or the leader of an organisation. And the three things for me are uh, the environment, the quality of the environment that we provide for the people we're with. So that's the physical environment, but the social, the emotional environment as well. Uh, the, the quality of the experience we offer, the, the opportunities we give people through the experiences we offer. And the last one, the quality of the people with whom our children work, our youngsters work. And you can work on the environment, the experiences and the quality of, and, and, the, and the people, and eventually you get a quality school. All those other things that we manage, the budget, professional learning opportunities, performance management, all, all the things that we, we manipulate are really that. They are tools that help us to to, to develop the quality that we want and I think that over the last 20 years particularly that use of the tools has started to seem to be more uh, more 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 focused more important almost than what it is we're trying to achieve and that's why uh, I think Wales is making a really big step forward in trying to move towards what it is we really want for the children for purposes four nouns with eight adjectives that are going to make a difference as we go on. And what Wales is trying to do is to move away from the managerialism of spreadsheets and budgets and all that, which are important, but not let them become the driving force. If you read the recent OECD report on the development in Welsh education, which is incredibly positive, one of the things that are in there as constant encouragement is to try and leave behind managerialism. And some work I'm doing at the moment in another part of my life in terms of, you know, my bigger agenda, is <laughs> my personal agenda is, is trying to record the way education has developed and the influence of policies and politics on education. And over the last few years, the drive towards centralising and marketization and marginalise managerialism has grown. And I think we're just on the cusp and Wales is in front of the cusp in terms of a new era of ambition, of purpose and belief for people involved in the system in trying to make it as good as possible. Now, all three speakers mentioned in different ways that there were many parallels between the worlds of them and the leadership of either schools or other areas of influence on young people. Stephen, in the world of technology and schooling, Marcus in the military arena, and Laura in sport and politics. But there were differences though, there are differences. There are parallels, but there are differences. Marcus leads soldiers. His rank is equivalent in the, in the military to the head of department, head of phase, a sort of assistant head teacher. Above him are lieutenant colonels and colonels, and then the ranks that are away from the field of war. And they're, they're basically the middle tier between those on the ground and those who were in government trying to direct, direct policy and take it forward. 
Marcus leads people. Uh, so, so do most people listening, actually. You all lead, lead people, yet he commands them. That's what his job is, the chain of command. And they're under his command. And about for him, it's about 120. A major typically manages 120 armed forces. Uh, and he doesn't lead tanks. It's a really interesting thing. He's a, he's a tank major, but he doesn't lead tanks. He leads people to manage the tanks. In education, we apply, don't we, to lead a school. We don't apply to lead people to, to deliver education. That's what's underneath it, but you actually apply for the job of leading a school. So we're invited to come and look around the school, look at the drama facility. Would you like to look at the outdoor environment? Let's have a look at the classroom, come and look at the labs. Imagine Marcus being interviewed for the major's job where they say, come and look at a tank. This is a pointy bit at the front and things come out of the pointy bit. Or look at this funny bit around the edge where the little caterpillar tracks take us on. Oh, your caterpillar tracks are different from our caterpillar. What we do is we, we try to lead the people and he tries to lead the people, but we focus and our focus is often forced on the institution that's trying to, to, to be moved forward. He's promoted and then deployed. Whereas in teaching, we apply for the promotion in the deployment that we need. I thought it's lovely, isn't it? He's just off to Baghdad and he's on a tour. I mean, how many of us would like to go on a tour to meet ISIS? Uh, but his tour will be followed by rest and recuperation. They know that, that's a, that's a given. So when he comes back, he'll have time to go and recharge not recharge you know, doing the basic P, uh, PPA, he'll be, he'll be recharging. And, and most of his life is time at base. And now and again, he gets called up for a tour of duty. So he gets told where he's going. His command is given to him. His 120 soldiers know that he is their leader. And a major doesn't have a group of parents who need to explain their leadership all the time. Or, if they, or parents who, if they don't like it or do like it, mention it on social media and you have to cope with that. And yet the environment he works in, just as I said, environment was one of the things that mattered. The environment does matter. Uh, uh, did you notice that uh, he was asked what he was doing before he went to Baghdad, Baghdad and moved up to the field of conflict? And he, he was going shopping for little essentials. And the first thing he mentioned was toilet paper and toothpaste, this special toothpaste. And what, what this means is that he's thinking of the environment, both for himself and his, his troops as he goes. Now, Stephen talked a lot about the environment. Uh, I don't know whether you remember, if you were watching that one, where Stephen had got the CO2 monitor at the beginning of his, of his talk, and he, he opened the window and put it out and said, oh, it's getting better now. He was making the point that the, the things affect the way we are, the way we learn. But the quality of the air, the heat, the light. He talked about that you could engineer a 5% increase in exam performance as a result of changing the environment. He talked about the fact that we've got rituals of seating in our school which help or hinder the way in which learning will take place. He talked about the need for plants and flowers. Partly, I think Stephen was talking about the impact they have on the atmosphere I would think about it in terms of the way it affects youngsters caring, their, their appreciation of beauty and so on. But the, the environment was part of the talk in that sense. Laura talked about the environment in a different way. She talked about getting on with the job. 
not having all these meetings. Uh, now, she didn't say the word environment in that, but actually that's right, isn't it? Do we want an environment where meetings matter or do we want an environment where we get on with the job and use the meetings to make that go forward? That's my thing about managerialism coming through. Now, I'm not going to talk extensively about environment, people and experiences, but I am going to sort of gel together what the different people said and try and bring that forward in the emphasis on leadership and trust towards the end. But let's start with COVID, COVID, which is, I know, uppermost in your mind. It, I, I don't know how you're coping. I, I, can, I can sit here in my little cubby hole in my room and I, you know, I've not been out into schools for longer than, well, however long this has been going on. And that's longer than since I ever started as a reception child. So I, I can't pretend to know, but what's, what kept being asked in the, in the sessions that were read, led by Stephen, Marcus and Laura was, will COVID mean change? Are we seeing things, you know, this new normal? Well, I think it, it could see change, but it'll need help to happen. Change won't just happen as a result of COVID. People typically, humans, want to revert to what they knew. That's why after an earthquake, they build buildings again on the very ground that let them down last time. It's because they want to get back to something with which they were familiar. So we, in, in education, we need to seize on the opportunities that COVID has created, and we need to guard against the pitfalls. So, for example, what we know when there's ultimate change, uh, 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 quite a lot of change in things, is that typically poor people do less well. So when the printing press was invented, lots of people could afford books and they progressed and made, made a more influential life. Other people got left behind. The same thing happens when technology came in and computers came in. And we've seen it, haven't we, writ large, that the children from the poorest backgrounds haven't got the computer equipment to do the things that we're asking. Stephen talked about the impact of plagues over history and he talked about the Black Death and he talked about plagues in Tudor times and Shakespeare's time. I don't know whether you've read it, but if, if you do history with children, you might have studied Pepys' diary. And, and Pepys talks about the, the plague at his time and the way in which, uh, if you read it, it's really fascinating that the theatres at those times were open air and people went to the theatre. It's what you did. You went and listened to music, watched plays, watched dancing and so on. And when the, when the, the uh, plague struck, they were all closed down. They were, I don't think they use the term lockdown, but all the theatres were shut. And at the time, people thought the plague was caused by being outdoors. And so because they wanted theatres to resume, they built theatres and put roofs on so that people went indoors and were safe from the plague. It's misplaced, but that's what they thought. And because there was limited seating, they could then charge for it. And because they could charge for it, some people couldn't afford it. And still today, don't we, the, the highbrow theatre is for those people in society who think it's for them and can afford it. And other people, almost as a defence mechanism, say, I don't, I don't like opera. Well, actually, you don't know. Children do it. They don't like Shakespeare. They're, it's a bit like olives. They've never developed a taste for them, and so they can't take them on. So I think there's a really big thing in terms of what we do that takes us forward in the, in the notion of looking after all wealth. And, and I always thought when, when we were training for the literacy and numeracy strategy all those years ago, when Wales was still part of the system that we've had to put up with, the, the, um, the 
the literacy and numeracy strategies were, were laid on for teachers, teachers going on these courses all the time. And I thought, well, I need to put it on the television. If you put it on the television, we could all watch it. And so could the parents and they would get a grip of what we were trying to do for their children. And Stephen mentioned, didn't he, subtitles. It's been a thing about, uh, I've been on about for 20 years. If you put subtitles on, what have you lost on the, on the television programmes for young children? And of course, will there be change as a result of COVID to do with time, how we use time, uh, whether time uh, over time. So, so Laura was talking, do you remember about Prestat in women's football and the fact that um, there was a problem in Prestat in all those years ago and people were banned, women were banned from playing football and it's taken a generation, two generations really, before women have been properly accepted into the football community and females are starting to have an influence on the running of sport. Law is a good example of that. But how, how we move forward in terms of change is, is always slow. You think that in the Second World War, we celebrate, don't we tell children about it? Women ran the, the munitions factories. Women worked on the, on the farms. Women did all the work. Well, as soon as the war finished, the men came back, the women went back where they were. And it was 25 years before equality became a, a true way forward for our society in, in the proper sense. So change is slow. And will it change us in terms of the way we use people? I mean, one thing this series has shown us is that people really value coming together quickly. Will, will, we, will we constantly travel to London Drod Wells and meet at the point of maximum inconvenience? having travelled for four hours to get there for a two-hour meeting? Or will we use the internet better? And maybe we can still meet in physical terms, but to talk about things in depth and, and to talk about things for longer time for focused learning, whereas other, other work could be through the, through the web. I mean, Stephen talked about learning's escape from its boxes. And, it, and he quoted, didn't he, that 19% of all people at the Open University are students who are still in school. That's, that's a fifth nearly. And, and the, 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 we, we've got to stop seeing it as cohorts of people going through the system. Now, if we're going to reimagine schooling, that might be a really good thing to think about and take forward. But how we get uh, learning to be seen differently, I think, is one of the challenges of leadership going forward. Assessment might change as a result of COVID. All the GCE shenanigans of this year, and I have to say Wales has, I think, managed it as, as well as it can be managed given. But what's happening is that the, the notion of so many exams in a big room over several weeks, a sort of trial by ordeal for teenagers, might just be slipping away as we rethink the practice over the next, next little while. Stephen used a word that I really love and have used for ages, ipsative, ipsative assessment. And I think that's a really, really big issue going forward. Are youngsters going to be involved in their assessment or is it going to be something done to them? Can they bring their perception of their own practice more forward? If you want a good model of assessment, have a look at how proficiency badges work in the scouting system. That's really good. Youngsters are told what the criteria is, they're told what's the expectation of product. They're told what the time spans are. They're told how it will be assessed. And they're given the chance to explain it to an assessor where appropriate. Now, I think the ipsative nature will really come to the fore over the next few years. 
And lastly, in terms of COVID, have we seen a breakthrough in blended learning? Well, we have, you know, uh, but blended is more than the blend between school and remote learning. I, I wrote an article for the EWC recently. It's a bit of a knockabout article, but it's on the website apparently. And, and I think it's more than digital and, and uh, ordinary learning approaches. In Graham Donaldson's document, Successful Futures in 2015, he listed 12 pedagogic principles that would ensure that the curriculum reform and, the, and blended learning is one of those principles. It would ensure curriculum reform worked. But when he talked about blended learning, technology isn't mentioned. What Graham was talking about in his 12 was blended learning is about balancing teaching approaches, avoiding extremes, not talking about traditional and progressive, but blending them together, trying to bring about the best approach depending on what it is we're trying to help the children to learn, making sure there's a balance between creativity, imagination, problem solving and scholarship. So that blendedness I think has started, but hopefully after COVID, we can reimagine it in a better way. So how do we make learning authentic, Graham was asking. How do we make it mirror the real world? Can we blend learning so that we bring youngsters into their learning uh, and engage them with agencies such as youth service, early years organisations, employers and so on? And these are areas of blend that I, st I still think we've got to explore. So let's not stop at remote and school-based learning. What Stephen, Marcus and Laura all encouraged us to do was to think rich, broad, creative, imaginative thinking in action in our leadership and the way we work. Stephen was talking about playful, creative, challenging, ingenuity, curriculum and pedagogy coming together. And one of the challenges in Wales now is to, is to take the curriculum and plat it with pedagogy and plat that with leadership and see these things as a cohesive agenda instead of things to tick off on a managerial list. So where we go after COVID, how we adjust, how we take advantage of the possible, avoid the difficulty, will be down to leadership and teams. And weren't we spoiled in those, in those sessions with thinking about all those aspects of teaching and leadership? Laura began, I thought it was lovely. Did you hear Laura? She said, I'll begin by saying uh, that I'm a bit of a leadership cynic. And immediately the, the, the chat bar filled with how honest, how lovely, because uh, we just... I'm not sure she's a cynic, to be honest. I think she's very, very measured about the way she uses it. She also said she was going to put her head above the parapet. And I thought, I wonder what Marcus would say. Here's somebody putting their head above. The, he'd go spare, wouldn't he? If you were putting their head above the parapet in his organisation. Marcus said he would dread being in a classroom or even leading a school as he went off to fight ISIS. I just see parallels are just lovely. To some degrees, all speakers talked about subsidiarity and Graham in his first document talked about subsidiarity. I had to look at what it meant. And basically it meant it means uh, making decisions at the point where they need to be made, putting the decisions where they matter, letting the person near the action have a view on what needs to be done. I don't know whether anybody's caught the programme that was on television recently. One of the programmes I watched for a very, very long time which was about the night the Notre Dame burnt down. If you haven't seen it, it's all on this catchapy stuff you can do these days. It is an hour and a half of absolutely delightful television. It's about one of the most you know, dramatic fires that has ever been recorded. 
but it's seen through the eyes of the firefighters and through the administrators and from the religious community that was there. And, and, it, and it's fascinating for me because they, they've got the firefighters reflecting on their experience, just sitting talking to camera, and the poetic nature of the language is just lovely. But apart from that, what really struck me was they, they were, the, the, the fire station was just cleaning up, ready for the inspection the next morning. They, they shine everything, they, they get the, the fire engines glistening, and they were ready. They knew they got an inspection at 8 o'clock the next morning. They'd just finished uh, getting everything pristine, and the alarm went because of the fire at Notre Dame. And uh, everything, therefore, was going to be used before the inspections. I don't know. But there was a young female firefighter who had just entered the system. She was in her induction. And she's on this, uh, on this screen, and they say, and then, the, and then the alarm went, and she said, I have to say, I'd never been to a fire before. And the adrenaline shot through my veins. This was going to be really good. And it follows her through the, through the uh, terrible, terrible fire. And what's interesting is how she's treated by a community of firefighters. Now, I've just done a, a study for Wales on the experiences of induction for newly qualified teachers. Within an hour and a half, this new firefighter, never having been to a fire before, was way up in the towers trying to put water on the fire. They didn't say, well, you're new, so you'll stay 10% down the ladder and we'll invite you up when we think it's all right to do it. So the parallel for me with education was, how do we get people to feel they've got a full role to play in this at the moment when they enter, rather than working towards perhaps having a role later? How do we not mollycoddle and you know, protect them? How do we get them to feel they've got an, a place in the system? Another bit in that programme was towards the, the roof gave way. They couldn't save the roof and it was built of such ancient timber, basically the fire just flowed, as you know. But they, they were still grappling with it. And the chains of command, the commander of the fire service was working with the president of France. There were several of the senior people around trying to work out what they could do to battle this fire. This is after several hours. And a relatively low level fire, firefighter asked if he could interrupt because he thought he had an idea of how they could try and save the towers where the bells were. And the chains of command stopped and asked him to express his idea. It's a very moving piece of the film. And he talks about how he felt awkward because these people had more experience, but he thought he knew the answer. And the answer was to take 30 people up the two towers at the end, to 15 up each tower, and to fight the fire from there and work towards each other. And he was encouraged by his senior people, and his senior people are way up, they're way up the middle tier, saying, tell us more, tell us what you think. Do you think you can make it work? Can you work with your own teams to get it going? And it's such a moving piece of film. If you haven't watched it, you need to watch it. It's about two hours. You need to watch it over several bits. But once you're getting there, the first bit, once you pass the first bit, it's really engaging. But my point is, somehow we've got to get every, every individual in the system believing in the big picture, the values that matter. What are we about in Wales at the minute? And Laura talked about juniors not being slaughtered for saying something, which was a bit, I thought, again, Marcus sort of language slaughtering and that. But she is right, isn't she? 
Marcus is in the military. Laura talked a lot about sport, not entirely, but they both spoke about winning. And, and, and sometimes they said it explicitly and sometimes they were talking about it implicitly. And both implied that the bigger victory would, would, would be achieved when the right things were addressed. That both worked to defeat opponents, but in, in schools, I wondered, and across the globe, uh, hasn't, have we got into a, a sort of mind frame where we're trying to win a victory, but are we fighting the right opponent, opponents? Because I, I think too many schools think that their victories have to come against the inspection regime or against the data regime and so on. When actually what we really want, the real opponents that we're all fighting are underachievement, poor mental health, obesity, lack of ability to form relationships, a lack of ability to see where the future might be for some of us. They're the real opponents for our children. The real opponents for our school is not binding our community together to get the best for our children. And the other things, they, they are skirmishes. I, I, I agree they're a problem. For goodness sake, I'd do something about them. But they are skirmishes on the way. And I think we're reaching the point, and I, and, and I think in Wales, you're further along than most places are where we could actually say to the inspection system, how do you intend to help us to reform the system and how can we help you to shed light on the system? There was a recent report uh, called uh, Estin, a learning inspectorate. So instead of inspecting school by school and eventually coming to an agreement about what's a good school, how about inviting the inspectors to come and look at schools in our community and spend time with us shaping the future as we move forward. I think Wales is reaching the point where inspection is a mature relationship and how inspection can move forward in a different way. We can't carry on with this, this notion of the spectre at the, feet, at the feast. You know, that yesterday upon the stair, I met a man who wasn't there. He wasn't there again today. I wish that man would go away. That, that's the sort of outlook on some of the, the, the some of the things that are there to check the education system, inspection, and some of the other things. And I think we can get past that. In fact, is there any sort of battle at all? This competition bedeviling some of the work that we need. Uh, the vaccine producers at the moment they're in a race against time, and they're in a race against each other. But the interesting thing, you know, is that those top scientists are busy sharing information with each other, with competitors, because they think that will enable the world to, to, to survive. And that's the greater race. And I, I think in terms of schooling, in, instead of our individual school and measuring our individual school, there's something got to happen that says, let's collaborate, let's really share. And I've watched on this series the way people are sharing in the in the groups, they're thinking they feel part of a community, and that's got to grow. We have to get the sort of minor managerial-led competition in perspective. I think Kirsty Williams is right about trusting the profession. And the middle tier of the profession, let's see where that middle is, because the middle doesn't have to be halfway between top and bottom. Middle can be in the mix, in the middle of it all. And I think the schools have a real chance at saying, we're the middle tier, you know, come and join in with us and help us to make it as good as we can. Indeed, Marcus' role as major 
as I said before, is one level below the middle tier on the military, sorry, in the military, in the military. And the job of major is to help the strategist to understand the big picture from their angle, not the other way around. And a shared agenda on the big picture is vital rather than a piecemeal agenda. And it's much more vital to get that big picture than the fragmented managerial approach that might have developed over years in education. And I, I really believe we've got to work to share the agenda with the strategists so the strategists can help us to make the impact that we're trying to get. Now, driving the teams, I thought was a fascinating aspect of all the, all the talks. Um, it was described as an internal state of mind about heart and mind. I, I love Marcus's phrase, leaders eat last. And I, I know, I mean, there'll be a lot of leaders on here now who, who are thinking, you know, I put my school first, I put the community first, you're worn out because of this COVID stuff and dealing with all the complexity. That's the equivalent of leaders eating last. And, and most of us practice that most of the time. Marcus said 90% of requirement in military leadership is social and emotional. That's incredible, isn't it? That there you are sort of marshalling a tank regiment and it's social and emotional. And leadership of self-awareness, management relations, building relationships, social things are as important as strategic and structural relationships. They both talked about values and standards. Now, you know, I was involved in helping people in Wales to develop their values and standards. People want to talk about the descriptors. Actually, it's the standards and the values and dispositions that really need to drive. I think when the standards were brought in, they were brought in and people thought managerially, this is replacing performance management. What do I have to do with them? What you have to do with them is take, take the descriptors and encourage dialogue and experience about those descriptors. Don't let it get into spreadsheets and don't let it get into charts because people need a safe space to grow into leadership, freedom to grow and develop. And emotional intelligence, as it's often called, is really vital. Marcus talked about leaders following the army-led code and boundaries are clear, and yet you're open to experiment. I think in education, what we need is that balance between boundaries and experiment at every level for all of us, teachers, head teachers, those who are in the other agencies, those who are in the so-called middle tier and so on. And that means, as Marcus was saying, both looking out of the window and seeing the big picture and looking in the mirror at ourselves and thinking, what do we need to go with it? Laura talked about getting on with it, not holding meetings, about getting on with it and how you have to move on. She, she used the example of Jurgen Klopp winning the European Cup and not coming home and saying, well done, lads, let's sit around and let's celebrate that. But already thinking about where we go next and how we take it. Go again, as they say. Now, I think I think education is different. I think it's relentless in a way that football isn't. Football is where you practice a lot and you have a crescendo for hour and hour. Education is relentless stuff. And so what we've got to work out is how we balance time so that it matters. But it is culture. It's what I was saying about the three qualities. The people you work with will respond to culture, make a difference to the organisation and for the leadership. Marcus talked about the disproportionate effect of error. If he gets it wrong, it's a real, real mess. And I, at the same time, wrote down, and for schools, if we get it wrong, what do we do to children's life? I've, I've been doing something this morning where 
somebody was telling me a throwaway conversation in their school when they were a child affected them for 20 years. A teacher telling them that they didn't think they'd come to much. And probably the teacher didn't mean it, didn't mean it in any big way, but it hit them. So all this stuff about her hierarchies, Marcus said about black and white, he said things are very black and very white. And I was, re I was reflecting that years ago, I, I, I did a lot, of, in a previous life, I did a lot of work for military schools abroad. And I, I went to several in Cyprus, Germany, Hong Kong, Belize, Auckland, I worked with them. And what I thought black and white is uh, you used to have to queue up in the mess to get a drink in the morning. And one urn was called tea and the other was called not tea. And, and so this black and white is very simple. We don't have debates about what counts. Whereas in education, we seem to we seem to have to debate decisions over and over again. Do you agree with it or do you not agree with it? I don't think it'll come to anything. Marcus was very clear that we have the debate, we have the decision, and then that's it. And we're going for it. And it, it, I love the concept of loyal dissent. I thought I thought the idea that you know people can say, I disagree, I dissent. I'm still with the organisation. I'm still believing it. Wouldn't that be lovely in education? I disagree with this. I, I want to raise that point. I am fundamentally committed to Welsh education doing better and making the progress we're seeking. And once, it, once it's been discussed, because it's valued as dissent, it then gets sorted. And once we've agreed, we've agreed. And we, we can't keep muddling about and saying, well, can we go back to where we were and things like that. There was a little bit about not recruiting in our own image. I thought that was really interesting. Teams needing to be more than a Gareth Bale and a range of people coming through. And, and I, I was then thinking about the way, and I am affected by this work I've just done with NQTs because it did, it did make me see the way that the system tries to create an image of a teacher and they, they become shaped into that image. And, and it's not images as in Marcus's organization with badges and emblems and who salutes whom and so on, but it's an image, if you're not careful, that's shaped by the evidence they have to show to their superior, their mentor. I know that's not superior, but they see that. And the mentor has to show the evidence to the external validator and the external, and it goes on and on and on. What we get if we're not carefully spoon feeding and we think we're spoon feeding downwards when actually we're also spoon feeding upwards, telling people what they want to hear. And, and you know the, the children's story, children's story about chicken licking, Henny Penny, Goosey Lucy, Foxy Loxy. They all end up running around in circles, following each other. Uh, but, but in the end, you can't work out whether you're following the one in front or looking over your shoulder to check on the one behind. And I, I think the, the, what happens then is the sky falls in. We've got to really make sure that we enable our, our youngsters to literally earn their stripes early, like the, like the female firefighter that you will see if you watch it at the, uh, the Notre Dame. And like NQTs want to, they want to make a difference to teaching. They don't want to keep a perfect record of what they might do if they ever get around to doing it, if nobody's looking. So they really need to feel empowered to be part of it. So this is leading into my last little bit, trust. Both Marcus and Laura talked about trust a lot, and Stephen talked about putting trust in children. So he said, we've got to trust our youth. Now, it's obviously, you know, the case that those from the youth service who are here today or the, sc the scouting sector really subscribe to that view. Let's trust in our youth. 
But we have to trust everybody. We have to trust the head teachers. We have to trust the NQTs. We have to trust everybody every second. And trust means things like saying when you're stuck. It means having ideas, helping others to see what's going on, researching the best practice, doing constant learning for yourselves. And all those things I've just mentioned are actually the five standards of which there are lots and lots of descriptors in the professional standards for teaching and learning and assisting teaching. But they need to be used to encourage trust and growth rather than to measure somebody's work. And so I'm going to end with what Stephen talked about, which was ipsative, ipsative assessment. What it means is reflecting yourself. It's not summative, it's not formative, it's not diagnostic. It means how well are you doing? I've, I've got a, a load of certificates and my favorite certificate, the one I'm proudest of is my beginner's width. I didn't get it until I was 28, I couldn't swim. And some mates took me along and made me swim, taught me how to do it. And, and I, I got across the pool and they made a joke of giving me a certificate from a school with a beginner's width on it. And, you know, I, I know I had to work for that. I still can't swim very well. I can only swim in straight lines and I have to stand up if anybody comes near and splashes. I've never done a length because I didn't go down the far end. And, and I'm still proud of that certificate. And I know I had to work for that one. I really had to work for it. And, and how, how do you get that sort of understanding of yourself in what we do? So there are people who, who get a very, very good inspection report and, and people who are giving accolades. I can never understand the congratulations on inspection, to be honest. But did you really have to work to that? Of course you did. But how much or did it almost fall into your lap? Because, you know, you, you've got an inspection team that, wasn't the same as another one and you had got certain things rolling in your favour and you got a dreadful one and people beat themselves up when they get a, a terrible inspection report and was it was it valid or not now on the one hand we have to fight for our community or we have to think you know that was right they were right or they were wrong and I, I'm standing by myself so this ipsative thing starts to come to and I think what we've got to do is, is encourage leadership to look closely at their own schools look closely at their own schools in, in the context of the overall school agenda and the sharing of community of professionalism across our across our school system so that we're part of something bigger we're driving something bigger we're enjoying being a significant part and we're trusted to make a better future for children in wales we're trying to make the welsh agenda work for our children so that they can look after themselves look after each other look after the planet look after their community and make our living better in the future. I'm going to stop there and I'm, I'm hoping that's enough, Tegwin, to give us a little chance to have a chat. And I, I do understand the pressures, but if you want to come back and sort of challenge me, question me or ask me awkward things, I'll be here ready to talk with you. If you can't come back, listen, I value everything you're doing. I think you're doing an incredible job, not just in COVID. I think you're doing well in taking curriculum development forward. But four nouns, eight adjectives, and I think they count for the grown-ups as much as they count for the children. Thanks for listening to me. Hello, everybody. It's that time of the day again. Well, it's not because it's the afternoon and obviously you've all got a very busy time. So what we're going to do, we're going to make the most of this half an hour or so, a bit less probably, to try and make sure you can all go safely at the end of the day. 
I'm going to ask people to come on again. If you have got any questions, please put them on the chat. Got a few lined up, but I'm sure there's lots to say. So I think what I'm going to do is invite Sharon to start us off um, to join. She was adamant then she wanted to have a little chat with um, Mick. So we'll invite you first of all, Sharon, if you want to start off with your question for Mick. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, Mick, thank you very much um, for today. But can I also say thank you for the last few weeks for the sessions that we've had. They've been really inspirational. And, you know, for those of us who've been listening, those who were in my group just now, we're really, you know, we've really enjoyed listening to this, the inspirational that uh, leaders that we've heard. So having listened over the last few weeks to some transformational leaders, we were just reflecting how we could share what we've learned with a wider audience um, so that we can inspire others to be courageous leaders. How do you inspire others to be courageous leaders when, you know, whether they're our peers or those who we are working with, um, especially when some of us still feel the weight of a top heavy down accountability process? And, uh, you know, how can we encourage them people to take that risk to be inspirational or inspirational and do things differently themselves? Thanks for that. It's uh, really good of you, Sharon. Uh, I do think, as well, as I said, I think the um, series has been brilliant. Uh, you call them transformational leaders. I, I don't mean this unkindly, but I don't think Marcus transforms very much. Uh, the army is the army, and uh, tanks are tanks, and battles are battles, and so on. What he does do is employ every, every leadership skill he's got towards making the impact that's necessary. Um, and Laura was talking about how slow transformation is. It's really, really difficult. I, you talked about how do we get people to be brave. Uh, I think the bravery comes in knowing you're in a big community of people with common outlooks and really trying to work together. And, and one of the things that this uh, series has done, and I've talked to several people about this series, is it's made people think they're included and they're part of something that's really big. And I, I think if you could get that and keep it going, that sort of um, energy that comes from a community is stronger than dispersed energy. Uh, and that's the real trick, I think. So everybody reach out to other people and, and be part of it in the biggest sense. I, I think that's a really big opportunity now. And it's not about... What do we agree with and what do we disagree with? But let's get the thing moving forward and keep adjusting as we go. Mm. And, and, you know, the, the trouble often is groups get into, um, you know, there are so many groups that want things better. There's, there's foundations for this and, you know, groups for that. And everybody will. And often they, they, they almost want the same thing. They're about 3% separate from the group next to them, but they, mm. they, they have to go their way because they're forest schools and they're not National Association of Environmental Education and they're different from. And so I think just accepting that we've got little differences, but most of us want the same thing. is a really big thing. Um, I know, uh, I know it's all going to change, but I know that Kirsty Williams does want people to band together and take, pick it up and, you know, carry the banner. 
so there wouldn't be a problem there. It's not being brave in the sense of we're going to meet resistance. The, the bravery, I think, is within ourselves. Does that answer it, or is that not enough? No, I think that answers it. You know, I think that, you know, um, whoops. I think there's a, a lot to think about and a lot to reflect on over the last few weeks. And I think that's one of the things that we need to consider. Thanks, Mick. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. You're welcome. Thanks, Sharon. I think following on from that, Mick, I mean, one of the things that really resonated with me was how much you talked about trust, it, you know, yeah. the trust within the system. Can I bring in, um, is Edward there, Edward Jones? I know your group have been discussing that in detail. Yeah, Fran Dara, good afternoon. Fran Hi, Mick. Do I get to speak to you twice in a in a week? That's that's uh, that's a that's a, that's a privilege. Yeah, I, I'm interested, sort of, in this notion of genuine trust. Whether we genuinely trust, um, I suppose, our staff, and I suppose we've 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 let go of lots of the book looks, the lesson observations. And actually, I think some staff have been empowered and they've they've really accepted that trust. And I actually think some really good stuff. I've had a quick sneak look at at some books and I think some of the market is probably better than it's ever been. But this idea of genuine trust, and if you think, you know, post-COVID, the curriculum for Wales gives us a huge opportunity, actually, to put trust back in the hands of the profession, doesn't it, in terms of of what we're delivering. I think you you alluded to the sorts of things that that we want, um, you know, uh, out of our learners and the, and the four purposes, I think, is a very strong driver of that. But how, how do we get that strong trust then across across the system in, in terms of parents trusting us, in terms of governors trusting us, in terms of the middle tier, your, your Estins, the, the Welsh government? So I think a lot of people are using the word trust, and I, and I truly believe you do use it in a genuine way. I'm not so sure whether trust is as genuine across the system. Yeah, I think... Yeah. It's hard, isn't it? Because for what happened after 1980s, 88, the Education Reform Act was that that, was, that came about because in the 70s, people had started to not trust schools. We didn't believe what they said. And so we've gradually, how can we, how can we ratchet it up so that we, have, we can trust what we were told? And then because we basically game the system, we come up with another fail safe and yet more and more checks and balances to make sure it's there. I, I think the, the concept of mutual trust is really big. Uh, you know, the old mutual trusts, uh, the finance institutions, basically the principle is if 12 people sit around a table and we all put one pound in every week, the first week somebody takes 12 pounds and everybody else has got to wait another week and put another pound down and the second person takes 12 pounds. So the trust is... On the 12th week, the last person to put their pound down still gets £12 back. But in the meantime, everybody's benefited to the, to the increased resource for their opportunity. And I think the same thing. I, I've got competence in my school on teaching languages. I will give that to the schools that are near me and need it on the trust, the mutual trust, that when I need help with science, somebody will bring that towards me. I've got trust with special educational needs. Some of the special education needs provision in Wales, you know, is absolutely superb. And yet when I'm in mainstream schools, I hear people, I hear youngish teachers, or so we say less experienced teachers, saying they're not sure what what to do with special education needs. They can fill all the forms in, (laughs) but they need to be able to 
help these people develop. So I think there's something about willingness to contribute, knowing you'll get something back. So that means really working with governing bodies and governing bodies not thinking they're protective of their school. It's not the governor's fault. I think that's been pushed into them. How do governing bodies see their bigger contribution? How do local authorities see that there's a chance to move things around the system to everybody's benefit on that trust basis? And, and we've been in this transactional world for so long, haven't we? If I give this to you, what am I getting back? When actually, now, you know, that's an attitude of mine and outlook, and some people can't do it. But the more people do do it, the more you sway it and you spread it and take it forward. So trust is, trust is just that. You've got to trust yourself to trust yourself to trust other people. That's always what, what, the, what the word means. Uh, I'd, personally, I'd rather work in a profession that does that than one that um, exacts, you know, cost to everything. And my experience is, and it's over <laughs> a very long while, that most teachers are in it because they want to be in something that's doing good. And most head teachers are in that. And I think if you, as Marcus and Laura both were saying, if you, if you give responsibility to most people, they take it. I know some people don't. And I'd rather have a conversation with them than, than not. I just tell them. <laughs> I know. It's not easy ride. It's hard work of being trusted. So I don't know. Does that help or not? Yeah, thanks. And, and um, yeah, I, I, I just feel that there is a positive sense, although we're in a difficult time at the moment, I, th I think there's a lot of positivity and, and I think people are quite excited by some of the opportunities that are ahead of us. And I hope we, we can keep that trust as a, as a golden thread through it all, I think. Yeah, I think the last thing you need is some method of checking on trust. And a, and a checklist to make sure trust is there. Yeah. And I have to say too much more, but, but I also think we've got into a, a game of compliance. The idea of compliance is that we've got to provide evidence for everything that we do. And that compliance then drives the system and not the needs of the learners. And that's one concern about the ALN reform in Wales. We'll end up with a, a shed load of paper for all these vulnerable learners, but actually we won't be putting the interventions mm. in place because mm. we're so busy being compliant. Yeah. Take, take out compliance and put collaboration in, you'd achieve way more. Simple as that. Exactly. That's it, isn't it? I'm going to thank you, Edward, so much. And that's open a discussion that I can see. Can I ask Joe to come in? Because this just follows your question there. Joe, could you just follow on, really? Are you there? Are yeah, you I am. Here? Sorry, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you want to say your question, because it follows on perfectly. Yeah, I just... Uh... Yes, uh, echoing what everyone said before, I, I think um, I'd like your view on whether we should measure or look at uh, pay reference to relational trust in schools, as they do in uh, in New York. They've got uh, trust measures across stakeholder groups, parents, uh, the community, in between uh, different groups of people within the school, and that's reported on. So, I wonder what your view on that is, on developing relational trust? Yeah, I, I I'm less for reporting on things and more for checking on things so i'm quite happy to check on relationships or check on any aspect of school and ask people what they think i mean we've done some evaluations on this series so we we talk to people about whether they think the series has been useful and what they've got from it and that's given us an indication what what i think hampers the system gets in the way is when we start bringing in uh, uniform measures so that we can compare one with another 
and and put a league table of relationship trust in, relational trust in, and, and it gets carried away because the managerial will take over. We've lived with it for so long that we can't help it. Uh, computers have been wonderful, but one thing they've done is help us to manage data. And, yeah. and that can be helpful, but actually it can get in a terrible mess. Yeah. And cleaning things that might be true or might not, and then taking them as true and taking it forward. So uh, I mean, I'm, I'm all for measuring whether the strength of the relationship between teachers and pupils is good, whether relationships are good with parents. I'm, not, I'm fine for it, but I just think you've just got to be so careful. It, it's, it, it's not a definitive all the time, and no, it's no. an indicator. Yeah. Agreed. I'm just thinking about the, the question was about trusting the system. Uh, just from a personal point, of view, I don't. I don't feel particular at the moment. I'm a highly trusted head teacher because I'm. We're all delivering in a very uh, difficult environment, as we know. And uh, at some point, I wonder where we start sliding down towards distrust, or the the, you know, the, the, the way we start to calculate calculate trust at different levels because COVID's gone. You know, mm. I'm just wondering when that might happen because we are highly trusted at the moment because of what we're doing, aren't we? We're managing a very difficult well, it is, it's, it's been fascinating. Yeah, when it first began, well, you know, after a month or so, everybody was talking about key workers and then they were valuing certain professions and the health service, obviously, care professions, teachers, bin men. Bin men got more, yeah. you know, more positive regard over a few weeks than you could possibly be. Power station workers, you know, it just went on and on and on. And at the time, everybody was saying, isn't it nice how we're all getting on together again? And I thought one of the things that we could really try and get from this was a recognition that it's not public and private sector. We all need each other and we all need to work together. But you see, last yesterday's announcement about the budget was public sector will have to have a pay freeze. So you immediately fall into camps. And I think that's a terrible thing. I think... Teaching is actually more trusted than people realise. I think, you know, any survey on on whether parents trust teachers is really high. Any survey done on which are the most respected profession, teaching comes out really well. A lot higher than estate agents, a lot higher than politicians and so on. Not Often not quite as high as hairdressing. But um, the, the teaching is a valued profession. Uh, the problem we've always got is that parents are affected, particularly parents, are affected by their own school. And there's some research I did a few years ago, which um, showed that if you did well at school uh, and, you, and you did well in life, as it were, yeah. business-wise and so on, you, you thought that was true to you. If you did badly at school, and did badly in life, you thought that was due to your school. If you did badly at school and did well in life, you thought that was due to you. If it, never was it the school that made the difference from a vast proportion of people because schooling is still sort of a, a part of your childhood and it's a significant part if it goes wrong. And if it goes well, you almost don't notice it's going well because it's going well. Yeah. And so you've got this... We, we must stop commoditizing schooling that's one of the problems with surveys it commoditizes it one of the problems with trying to suggest that you, you you're entitled to so much or so you know everybody's entitled to a quantity of things gives that impression that you know I, can we trust our organization to deliver that as opposed to what most schools want to do which is go the extra mile take on yeah. take on things for kids push the boundaries so i just think 
it will slide, but I think actually, if we grab the agenda, yeah, the, the profession, we could push it a lot further forward. Yeah. I agree. The Thank media, uh, the, the media, all would play with it. But there we are. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. Oh, thanks, there. I'm going to carry on with a little bit on that one from from what well, earlier when you were talking. You, you mentioned it, dissent and, and how I'm talking about valuing dissent now. How do you think make, that leaders can manage this in a time of transformation? Loyal dissent. I, I just thought it was such a nice phrase that Marcus yeah, used. And yeah. We don't want everybody going around dissenting all the time, do we? But but what we so much of what we do in teaching is uncertain. And what we've done over the years is made it more certain. You know, if we knew how to get every child to read, we'd do it, wouldn't we? Oh, because yeah, once they can read, once they can read, they're away. And and teaching becomes easier. So the premise that we aren't trying, I find it really ridiculous. And and so what you want is a constant conversation about how we build this up and how we make progress more quickly deeper and, and stronger not a conversation about are we doing it right or wrong all the time this black and white as marcus said is you know a, a feature of his world in education it is not black and white very often it is now and again some practice is awful some practice is bad for children but let's have a proper thing and and i think we've got to encourage a notion in in teachers and particularly head teachers that there is a debate to be had and we're all part of it I, i've sat in several conferences in the cricket ground at, at cardiff where you know new policy is explained and the, and the outlook is we're telling you and I, I, I don't blame i'm not critical no. we're telling you the policy to engage you and then you can ask us about the policy and, and what we really want are people to say, thanks very much for the policy. We'll run it on now. <laughs> we'll take it. Give it <laughs> us. Uh, here we go. And I think the chance is there if we can only work out, you know, as a group of community of heads. And I have to say, talking to some people about the value of this series the other day, where we had some seminars to work out what people have got from it, the drive of it... Um, as a, as a community of interest, this, this series where people felt part of it in a way that they haven't before. And it's odd because they're all separated, sitting in, sitting in their head's room or sitting in under the stairs listening to this stuff. But they feel part of something really big. And I think the Leadership Academy is really pushing that agenda that we're in it together. Come on, let's go. It's but, so interesting know. talking to you. Oh, and I just want to carry on and carry on. But I'm going to bring my last guest on to ask you a question now and this is where I met you at this person's school so Jeremy are you there? Oh, hey, Jeremy. Yeah. Uh, hi Mick how are you doing? We Jeremy, had a really... yeah. I'm sorry I saved you to last because that's what I wanted to say and we met and that resonates with me Mick the two of us walking around Jeremy's school it was eight <laughs> o'clock in the morning and we had a chat with staff and it your interest in the staff and your oh just loveliness towards them just really, it will always stay with me. <laughs> Jeremy, your question. And then we went on to make the movie. Which we don't talk about. We don't ever talk about Come that. on, go with the question. The go question is, the question. We, we talked a lot about uh, manager, managerialism in our group, and it's that tension between uh, the, the management uh, and creating the stability, the systems and processes to enable schools 
to have the time to be visionary, strategic, innovative, and to, uh, you know, as leaders, motivate and develop staff as a prime, uh, as a prime objective. So well, how do we balance that tension of, of being really good managers, creating stability in our schools in order to demonstrate improvement? Yeah, I, well, I think, thanks, Jeremy. I think, um, first of all, there's a difference between being a person managing and carrying out management. I think you, you can manage and you can lead, which is different from recording the fact that you have managed to show somebody else that you've managed so they can show somebody different that they've managed you managing the management. <laughs> and so there's a whole thing in that. I talked about three qualities that I think are really important. Quality environment, quality experiences and quality personnel. You can't just do them without strategies. So you've got to have strategies. I would have a strategy for uh, and be clear that everybody knows what we stand for in attitudes, values and relationships, grown-ups and children. I would have a strategy for the curriculum of pedagogy, a strategy for internal organisation and a strategy for external relationships. And they cross each other. What's happened is the internal organisation has grown because we can record it. We can measure it and we can hold people to account for it. But actually, attitudes, values and relationships is really fundamental. It's just harder to record, as one of the earlier questions was saying. External relationships, how you get on with your parents and so on, absolutely fundamental. How do you keep that as bubbly as you can get it? So there is a tension. I just think I, I, one of the things I talk about is I lived a lot of my life in places that make shoes. And, and what you know in shoemaking is that people build things to last. So the last is the thing you make the shoe on. And the phrase built to last doesn't come from lasting forever. It becomes shaped to fit. And every school should shape to fit its community. And the schooling system should shape for the children of Wales. And another key phrase I always use as a head and I use with children is that in the shoe industry, when you put the leather onto the sole, you have to trim it, and that's called skiving. And one of the things all leadership needs to do is how to trim off the waste and how to cut it down to what really needs doing, and you need to be really good at skiving. And in one of the groups of schools I work with at the moment in England, I've just worked, it's taken probably two years, we've constructed a little booklet called the Leadership Year, and it shows what you need to do daily, what you need to do weekly, what you need to do termly, what you need, what you need to do annually. And, and the danger is that that, that that then gets grabbed as a time and motion study when what it's really shown is that time spent in a teacher's classroom talking with children, time taking that back to another classroom and saying, guess what I've just seen, will reap more benefits than just simply keeping a list of things that ought to be done and checking they are. So I don't know whether that Yeah, no, I fully, fully agree with that, Meg. Thank you. Wise words, Mick. Thank you so much. I'm going to stop there and I'm going to pass over to you now just for your closing words. But thank you so much. The whole series has been a joy and it's been lovely working with you, Mick. Thank you. I'm going to, I'm, I know people are against the clock, so I'm going to do two things. I'm going to say a couple of words. And I'm going to read you a poem. In the... Um, when people knew I was on this, a lot of people got in touch saying, can you read us a story? Uh, because last time I did a talk, I talked about um, Trick or Tracker, and apparently people liked it. Some people wanted it again, but I didn't know if everybody did. So I found you a poem. Before I read that to finish, I'm not going to do a great recap. I'm just going to say that I think this series has been absolutely tremendous. I think it, it succeeded what people anticipated. I know that a lot of people feel really included. I think the wisdom of taking people 
into the leadership arena who are not in schools and making them have the opportunity to be with our colleagues in school will be super. And, and I, I hope that you'll keep it on. I think this power that comes from mutual trust could be absolutely superb. Personally, I'd extend that into the middle tier and invite them to join in what is now the middle tier and gain the ground, take the ground. It's not, not in an aggressive way, but just take the ground and, and drive the agenda for the government forward. Here's your poem, is it, it's called. I hope you like it. I've got hundreds of poems and I just picked this one for you. So It's called All I, Ever know, All I Ever Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. I bet you've all heard it before anyway, but it's gorgeous. Most of what I really need to know about how to live and what to do and how to be, I learned in kindergarten. Wisdom was not at the top of the graduate school mountain, but there in the sandbox in our nursery school. These are the things I learned all those years ago. Share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say sorry when you hurt somebody, however unintentional. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. Warm cookies, warm biscuits and cold milk are good for you. Live a balanced life. Learn some and think some and draw and paint and sing and dance and play and work every day some. Take a nap every afternoon. When you go out into the world, watch out for traffic, hold hands and stick together. Be aware of wonder. Remember the little seed in the plastic cup. The roots go down and the plant goes up and nobody really knows how or why. But we're all like that. And then remember the book about Dick and Jane and the first words you ever learned, the biggest word of all, look. Everything you need to know is there somewhere in the classroom, in every school. Golden rules about love, basic sanitation, ecology, ecology politics and sane living. And then think. Think what a better world it would be if we all, the whole world, had biscuits and milk at about three o'clock every afternoon and lay down with a blanket for a nap. Or if we had a basic policy in our nation and all the other nations always to put things back where we found them and clean up our own mess. And it's still true, no matter how old you are, when you go out into the world, it's always best to hold hands and stick together. And I don't know what you think about it, whether you've heard it before, but I tell you what, if the head teacher and the teaching community held hands and stuck together it would be the biggest circle of friendship and the most professional circle of development that had ever been developed. And Wales got a chance. All those purposes are in circles. Four purposes, four nouns, eight adjectives. Apply them to the grown-ups as well as the children, and there's nothing to stop you. Thanks for listening to me. I've, I've enjoyed this afternoon, however hard it is talking to a screen. Thanks. <laughs> Keep doing good things. Cheers. Oh, diolchen fawr, Mick. Um... How how do I thank you uh, for for this afternoon, but also for all the work you do in supporting us at the Leadership Academy? We are we are grateful. But once again, um, you've uh, you've enabled us to think beyond um, what we think we know, and uh, and made made it accessible to us as well. Thank you also to all our participants over the last four workshops. Really, and Gwethrogi Hamsechi Gadani and Estoda um, blanket and milk and holding hands definitely resonates with me, although possibly a glass of wine and a blanket might uh, might be better. Um, 
But you also said, Mick, um, we're in it together and we certainly are. This is our education system for our children. And thanks for reminding us about that. Let's get rid of this divide within the system and, um, and work towards a common goal, which is to enable our children to meet those four purposes, four nouns and eight adjectives. Gweithiwn eich bod wedi mwyn hair bennod hon o bodlediad yr Academy Arwynyddiaeth. Tan ysgrifiwch ar Spotify, podlediadau Apple neu Google a pheidiwch byth â cholli pennod. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leadership Academy podcast. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts and never miss an episode.